0: I'm down here where you can get at me. Um, you know what? We've done some preliminaries. So um, we'll, I'll be moving a little bit more quickly. Um, but let me, let me just dig in. I've already, Usually at this point, I um, make a little comment or two about my students. Who's, that's kind of cute. Little lessons they learned about how central the resurrection is. And then I talk about the creedal material, which I don't need to do too much. So I'll be moving right into the timeline. But if this kind of spurs your thinking a little bit, um, I've had students kind of catching a, they kind of, when they see how central we teach, we have a required PhD course on the resurrection. But I've been doing this for a long time. And I used to teach undergrad and not all my students were anywhere near as devoted as my PhD students. One of my students said to me, true story, he said, when, he said, I've learned the resurrection is the center of faith. So whenever I take one of your exams and I don't know what word goes in the blank, I write the word resurrection and I know I will get at least half credit. <laughs> Now, he gets half credit because he knows that, in my view, any apologetic question sooner or later will come back to the resurrection. So even if he's way off the subject, he's resurrection. So one day, he actually took one of my tests. He had to have guessed on the true-false because they were just lopsided. He was just doing everything with them. He gets to the fill-in-the-blank because it was a church history exam, and you know what history exams look like. And he writes, Resurrection, 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 Resurrection. This is true story. Flips the page. Resurrection, Resurrection, Resurrection. It was about a five-page exam. He quit after about four questions on page two, turned it in, and he got about a 50%, which is an F. Um, one time, the students at that same college put on a skit, and it was a spoof on faculty. My son at that time, who's 42, was about three years old, and his name was Rob. And In this skit, they said, didn't happen, they're just making a little joke, and they said, yeah, I saw Rob walking down the street the other day. And I said, Rob, beautiful day, isn't it? And he stared at me and he said, what does that have to do with the resurrection? <laughs> We hope it sink it in, that same Rob, when he was seven, eight years old, came to the dinner table one night, true story, and said, Dad, our Sunday school teacher asked us all to do a little bit of thinking for next week, I think it was a week before Easter or something. How do we know Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Well, you know, in between past the corn and past the rolls and where's the meat and who took the salt and... In between those questions, my son never asked me academic questions. He wasn't a very good student. And so I just kind of played around a little bit. And I said, Rob, who's the first president of the United States? Now for those of you who don't study US history, and I don't blame you. (laughs) Um, I live in the US. It's across the ocean. Our first president, George Washington, and I said, "Rob, how do you know if George Washington first was president?" He goes, "Come on, Dad, I asked you about Jesus," and I said, "Come on, Rob, I asked you about George Washington. How do you know he's the first president?" And, they, and then he, um, we need some books. Okay, Rob, good start. What kind of books? Old ones. Okay. Who do you want to have written those books? Did anybody know him? Yeah, a few people knew him. Do we have anybody writing about him? That's what you'd have to go dig up. Maybe you could find something by his wife, Martha. That would be a cool insight. And you know, back to the past the corn and the butter, we never finished the discussion. I didn't realize that for a week or so. And the next week I said, Rob, what happened in Sunday school? He said, my teacher came in and said, how do we know Jesus is raised? The and I put my hand up, which was really strange for him because he didn't answer questions in Sunday school. Rob, how do we know George Washington is the first president of the United States? <laughs> and the Sunday school teacher said, what? And then the Sunday school teacher said, oh yeah, you're Habermaster's kid, aren't you? (laughs) But here's the point I was trying to get across. Whenever I teach this timeline, I have taught this, I've given this lecture to 10 to 15-year-olds in classes. So I have to throw in some little stories and things, and I throw the Rob George Washington thing in for this reason. I want the kids to realize... That the question of Jesus' resurrection is the same as the question of George Washington or Richard the Lionheart, Winston Churchill, or somebody who wouldn't do so well on an historical exam, Robin Hood, or somebody I like, but I wish there were more data and there weren't, there aren't. And that's what do you think? One of your heroes. King Arthur, all the data are way too late to make a difference. And That's how you do history. And that's how you study the resurrection. that's the point I was trying to make with him. We, it's not religious history and non-religious history. It's history. And we need early sources and eyewitness sources. Do we have them? Yes, we do. And that's the lecture we're going to do right here. This could be George Washington, could be Richard the Lionheart, it could be, well, we could do Robin Hood or King Arthur, but they're not going to come out so good, because we don't have the data. But you can check it. But my point is, even with the last two names, the process is the same. History is history. Or I could use the Alexander question, because our sources are late. Okay? So... I'm going to use only two portions of Scripture. I told you this afternoon lecture, I'm going to use what I call the minimal facts argument. I will use virtually nothing in this lecture. When I start talking about Paul, I'll be here. I'll be right about here. Ground zero, the death of Jesus is going to be down there. When I get to Paul, I'll say a little bit about the Gospels, but when I get to Paul, everything from here on is conceded by virtually every scholar, I don't care if he's an atheist New Testament scholar. He just has to know the New Testament. He cannot be. I'd rather have an atheist New Testament scholar. Well, I guess I should be careful. I started to say, I would, I'd rather have an atheist New Testament scholar than a Christian English professor because they're out of their field. But at least the English professor would give, you know, if, if it's a Christian, would presumably give the right answer. But you have to have somebody who's in the field. And when the person's in the field, it doesn't matter where they are because it's a consensus view is that we can get back there, okay? So with this in mind, oh, one more thing. This might help you understand the argument. I go to state universities regularly, in the US and in your country. Um, There wouldn't be state universities here, but your big universities. And I will often say to them before we start, just to kind of get them involved, kind of get them interacting. I'll say, if the Bible is an inerrant word of God like some Christians believe, you folks answer like the university students. If the Bible is an inerrant word of God, has Jesus been raised from the dead? That's not a trick question. <laughs> has Jesus been raised from the dead? Yes. yes. All right. If the Bible's not an error, because we're talking about people's views here, not the Bible per se. If the Bible's only pretty reliable, pretty good book, is Jesus raised from the dead? Probably. What if the critics are right and the New Testament is on the same level with Homer's Iliad? Yeah, there's a few facts in there. Maybe we'll find a Troy. Maybe there's a Trojan horse. But come on. it's not a history book. If that's the New Testament and some of the reports about Jesus are wrong and some of them are right, do we have a resurrection on this last view? What do you think? I understand if the Bible's inerrant, we have a resurrection. If the Bible's fairly close to inerrant, kind of really reliable, we have a resurrection. But what if it's like Grimm's fairy tales, Homer's Iliad, Aesop's fables. Do we have a resurrection? Almost for sure not. Unless you do the minimal facts argument that we're going to do tonight. And I'm going to argue that if all I use are their facts, and there's only about a half dozen of them, my view is as few as three, they will grant all the facts. They will grant them. You go, How do you know they're going to grant all the facts? I counted. I have counted all the sources, major sources, from 1975 to date, French, German, English. I was talking to a group of students from South Africa last week, and I had to tell them, sorry, folks, I didn't check Afrikaans. French, German, English, major research languages. And if all I get are these six facts, and I can tell you, the amount of agreement would be in the probably high 90s by skeptics. In fact, sometimes I'd rather talk to a skeptic. Lately, they've been more honest. They see this this coming. Just give me six, and we get resurrection. That's the argument I'm going to do with you. So now here's how the argument works. Bible's inerrant? Jesus raised. Bible, pretty close, really reliable, Jesus raised. Bible like Aesop's fables? Yes, Jesus is still raised. So I tell the university group, and I smile so I don't look mean, and I don't wear a coat. I wear blue jeans and a t shirt or something so they don't prejudge me. They actually, the people who bring me tell me to wear blue jeans and a t shirt. And I say to them, here's my argument in a sentence on the resurrection heads, we Christians win, tails, whoever you are, you lose. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And everyone, and everyone's going, ha, 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 that's funny. And I'll say, yeah, it is, but I'm giving you a friendly challenge. And this isn't true of this building. We've got a long way to go tonight. But I on the university campus, as I say, and I'll stay here till the janitors kick us out. And if you think I'm wrong, you come up here and tell me where the error of my argument is. I'm I'm asking them to come up. I'm asking them if they want to be witness to. But when you do it with a challenge, you get these guys who have played sports, and you get people who are competitive, and I sit on the, just like this room, I sit on a deal like this, and I'm surrounded sometimes by 30 students, and we talk friendly. One thing about this generation is that they're friendly. Almost no one wants to, hockey phrase would be drop the gloves almost nobody wants to go at it they're friendly and if they disagree with you they just disagree i'll talk to them and some of them will say remember paul in athens i'm not saying i'm paul anything like that but remember the people in athens said we want to hear you again on this remember that so they'll say can we email you sure that's why i have my email issues Uh, Can we call? No. My number's in the phone book. Yeah, they call all the time. And we start conversations. I'll tell you one thing you can rejoice in. Over the years, it's not me. Regeneration is not anything that a human being can affect. But over the years, I've probably seen between 15 and 20 skeptics, atheists, unbelievers become Christians. Seriously, I don't even tell this. This may be the first time I've told this in a group. I don't do it. Because I don't want anybody hearing chalk two up for me. That's baloney. We should never talk like that. We didn't do it. But... The point is, the only point I'm trying to make to God's glory, That's is how good the resurrection argument is. All right, so here we go. Here's 30 AD, round zero. Now, the average Christian say, how do you know Jesus is raised from the dead? They're going to say, well, I got to get over the halfway mark, they'll say, Mark's 70-ish. Now, I already said, we may be putting Mark back to 40 pretty soon. But Mark's, the worst Mark is is 70 minus 30. Mark is plus what? Plus what? 40. I'm using critics' dates, by the way. These are not evangelical dates. It'll be a little later than ours, but not much. Not enough to make a difference. They put Matthew at about 80 or plus plus. How much from here to the cross at 80? It's late, isn't it? How far is this to the cross? 50. Thank you. Luke, about 85 or 55. And everybody puts John at about 95 95 or 65 years. That's as bad as it gets. 65 is as bad as it gets. And folks, 65 is excellent in the ancient world. I could stop right here and say, okay, any questions? we got a resurrection. What do you think? I'm not going to, but that's how good the case is. Bart Ehrman counts everything up to 100 years. He's the skeptic best known probably in the world in the Western world right now So if this is John at plus 65 we probably have to go over close to that wall and everything up to the wall is admissible looking pretty good and remember where Alexander is that's Alexander's death down there and here's Alexander's sources. I'll probably about here. I don't know. I just realized there's no road on the middle. <laughs> all right. Alexander's like three times this far. And people say, oh, we can know all things about Alexander. Why can't you know all kinds of things about Jesus? There's a word. It's called prejudice. You know, in a way, I kind of don't blame them because I wouldn't want somebody to tell me their religion was right and I was wrong. I understand. But good data are good data. So, we could stop right there. John's looking good at 65. But, Paul's argument starts here, and this is conceded by everybody. Paul's 1 Corinthians is placed about 55. By the way, maybe the most readily ascertainable date in the New Testament is when Paul came to Corinth. Because we know the name of the guy who was, we'd call him a mayor. That wasn't the name the Greeks used. But we'd call him a mayor, and here's what's convenient. These guys served one-year terms. So, to know the guy's name means to know when he was mayor, which means we know when Paul came to Corinth. And this guy was mayor between 51 to 52 AD, right in there. Second half of 51, first half of 52. And Paul's writing it here. But this is when he came. Why Why is that consistent? Because remember, he said, I gave you what I was given let's review. He writes it. John's great at plus 65. Mark's better at plus 40. Paul writes it at plus 25. But Paul said, I gave you what I was given. Paul gave it to him orally about three years earlier. Now we're back to 21 to 22 years from that event. But here's the million dollar question. When and from whom did Paul receive this material? I gave you what I was given. When and from whom did Paul receive it? Now you've already heard the answer, so we've done it tonight. I'm just gonna plug it in. I ended the last lecture with it. The consensus New Testament view is that Paul received this material. This is ground zero. Paul received this material about plus 5 or 35 A.D. They go, please, let me in on the secret. I don't remember dates like that in the New Testament. How do you get it? Very easily. Here's here's crucifixion, 30. Remember I told you how the 70 epistles of Paul are accepted as... By critics, you can quote the seven epistles. If you weren't here for that, um, maybe get the notes from somebody. Or this material is going to be available, isn't it? Yeah, this material will be available. So the critics will let you cite the seven epistles. I'm only going to use two very small portions of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, three and following, and the last verses of Galatians 1, first verses of Galatians 2. And I say two portions of Scripture because in the originals there were no chapter dividings there. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, into Galatians 1, beginning Galatians 2. Now, how do we get plus 5? Here's the cross, 0. Paul says he met the risen Jesus in the road to Damascus. Scholars, both critics and evangelicals, put this at about plus 2 or plus 3 after the cross. So we're at 32 or 33. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, three years later I went up to Jerusalem to meet those who were apostles before me. All right, you all with me? Cross. Paul's trip to Damascus, plus two or plus three? Three years later he goes to Damascus. You've got two plus three, five. Or three plus three, six. Paul goes here. The critics think this is when Paul received the material. How? Well, give you several decent arguments. There's three individuals in the list of appearances of 1 Corinthians 15 three individuals and three groups. The individuals are Paul, taxed his name on the end, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. When he goes to Jerusalem, the two others he meets are James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. Well, that's a little bit circumstantial, but, I mean, you know, it's okay. But Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, there's a Greek word there. A lot of Greek words there. But the important Greek word in Galatians 1, 18 is hysteresai. Hysteresai. The root word for hysteresai, let me transliterate it, Greek has a different alphabet than we do, but let me transliterate it to English. Historasi. H-I-S-T-O-R. Sound cool? H-I-S-T-O-R. There's a Greek word from which we get our English word. History. Now, you got to be careful. You just can't say, oh, yeah, Paul says he went to Jerusalem and he was playing the role of the historian. No, I'm not saying that. But there are several non-evangelical word studies of the word hysteresi, and the root word is store, and the chief conclusion is, unfortunately, English translations kind of blow it, and they'll say things like, Paul saw the other two. He got acquainted with the other two. That's better. But the Greek tends to mean questioned, inquired, or we might say, you know, did a little research ask some good questions. So, here's what you have. On the way to, to Damascus, plus two or plus three? Comes to Jerusalem, plus three more, plus five or plus six? Played the role of, the, of a, doing an inquiry and met with James and Peter. Now, What would you have asked James and Peter if you were Paul? If you had one question, back to this apocryphal story of my son saying, what does that have to do with the resurrection when they said it's a nice day? Uh, I would have said, guys, let me ask you a question. We're all in a little bit of hot water, the three of us. I persecuted Christians. James, not picking on you. But you didn't believe your brother, you know. Just reminding you. (laughs) They'd say in the States today, I'm just saying. (laughs) And Peter, dude. You denied your Lord three times after saying you'd crush anybody who comes to take him. I mean, that's not cool. What would he say? Here's what I'd say. He hasn't heard their testimony, we think. Here's what he says, I'm guessing. I will tell you guys what happened to me on the road to Damascus if you tell me, Peter, What happened when you denied your Lord three times and he appeared and said, Come here, Peter, let's talk. James, understand you had issues. We all have issues. What did you do when your brother appeared in your bedroom or wherever and put out his nail-scarred hands? There's no word for uh, wrist in the Greek, so... Almost everybody thinks the nails are placed right here. Puts his hands out. And he says, Jesus says, bro, it's me. Touch me if you want. You guys tell me, I'll tell you. Deal? And I'd have their testimony. And don't forget the theme of the book of Galatians is the gospel. Here's the theme of the book of Galatians in one sentence. It's all about the gospel. Get it right. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. If you do, you just became a heretic. Cut it out. Teach the whole truth about the gospel. Any questions? Boom. So if the whole book of Galatians is about the gospel, what else could he even ask him about except for the gospel? Besides, 14 years later, Galatians 2 we're told Paul went back up to Jerusalem. This is dated about 48 AD, so it's only plus 18. And it's specifically said he asked him about the gospel. He goes back up, 48 AD. This date's pretty secure, because Paul gives the years. And right here, he says, I set before them, Galatians 2.2. I set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. What? Yeah, I laid the gospel that I was preaching, Paul talking. I laid the gospel on the table to make sure we were all on the same page. And I wanted to see if they agreed with me. Well, Paul, what was the answer? Here's the answer. Five words in English. After Paul says, I set before them the gospel I was preaching, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. Isn't that just another way of saying we're all on the same page? They added nothing to me. And in verse 9, they give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and they say, you take this gospel to the Gentiles, and we'll continue to take it to the Jews. And Paul said, we were thrilled to do that. You don't lay hands on a heretic. Is that fair? They added nothing to me, and a few verses later, they laid hands on us and said, take, you don't mess around with the gospel. You don't say, yeah, take, crummy, take your watered-down version of the gospel and take it to the Gentiles. We'll give the real one to the Jews. That didn't make any sense. They're on the same page pretty neat. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. After he gives the six appearances, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, a very important verse, 1 Corinthians 15:11. he just got done talking to Paul, just got done talking about the apostles seeing the risen Jesus, and he says this, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, You want to come talk to me? I'll tell you about the appearances. Tell you about the gospel. You don't want to or you're closer to Jerusalem? Hey, talk to James. He's a good guy. Talk to, to Peter. He's a good guy. And guess who's there and who shows up in Galatians 2? John is there. You got the big four. Nobody is more influential in the early church. They're all there. And Paul says, we're all preaching the same thing. That means nobody, every once in a while you'll say, what if they added things to the gospel later? You got the big four right here, already signing an affidavit, basically, saying that's the gospel. So it's pretty neat. All right, so he gets it here about plus five, or if you prefer, plus six. But why do the critics back it up? Why do they say the pre-Pauline period is in here? Same two to three years that we put down here. Why? Okay, watch. Paul receives this material plus six. If Peter and James gave them his testimony, they had their testimony before Paul had it. Fair? Fair? I tell you something, I had it first. You hear it, I have it. Now, let's go back to the creed. It takes a while to put something in a creedal form. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da 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 2 stanzas, 1 Corinthians 15. So it's almost like somebody was getting the words together, now someone's got to put the music to it. It's going to take a little while. Paul learns it. They had it. It took a while to put it in creedal form. Bingo. We're right here. And that's why critics say this is not any later than one, two, maybe three years. And I am using a text, I can make this argument, with this Bible down here. The one with the people in that room who think it's like Aesop's Fables or Homer that's the Bible they're going to grant me, and that's the Bible I'm going to take. I mean, not because I have anything else. They won't grant mine. So if I have to talk to them and say the whole Bible's true, like I believe it is, they'll just go, "We're done," because they don't make distinctions. So I'll use theirs so they can see the argument, and I'll t- tell them, "I don't just, I don't just grant your point." I grant all of scripture, but I'm doing this to show you that you don't have a leg to stand on. Jesus is raised from the dead. So what we get here is an argument that goes all the way back to here. Remember George Washington. Remember Lucian from our earlier discussion. How do you do history? Early, 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 early. Eyewitness, eyewitness, eyewitness. Now somebody at this point goes... Early witnesses can be wrong. Yep. Eyewitnesses can be wrong. Yep. Here's my comeback. So what do you want me to use? Really, really late ones who never saw anything? Is that what you're suggesting? History is a good discipline, right? Yeah. All right, then. I'm using the best we have, and no other religion has any argument like this. It just happens to be at the center of our faith. If this is true, i got to point down this way to the future. That's 2017 down there. If this argument is true, actually we have to go back to the cross. If this argument is true, the yellow brick road starts here. If you missed my earlier terminology on yellow brick road, you can... Check that out with someone. But the yellow brick road starts here, and it ends in Oz. Or you could use a more biblical illustration and say the scarlet ribbon went through the Old Testament, comes through the cross, keeps going, and ends up in the New Jerusalem, if you want to use the biblical one. But the point is, when this is true, you're on your path. And what do you do when you're on the yellow brick road? We teasingly said, Fix up the ten men. Remember, Jesus' second greatest command is love your neighbors yourself. Take the scarecrow off the post. Oil the tin man. Help that lion for crying out loud. Be careful of fields where the poppies will put you to sleep. Avoid all the pitfalls. And get down there to that emerald city. However, as I also said today, it's not just about us. It's not just about, avoid, avoid, avoid. I want to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven. It's about who can you bring with you. So when you stop to help the scarecrow, you tell them about the gospel. You don't just get them off the post, you tell them about the gospel. You don't just oil the tin man, you tell them about the gospel don't help cowardly lying. You can tell him he can be a coward and still go to heaven, loser. <laughs> this is horrible. But you tell about the gospel. And you got to stick together, love your neighbors, yourself. As we're going through the poppy seed field, people are dropping off, and we've got to kind of slap their face a little bit and get them back up and out of this deep sleep and get them to Oz. The Bible says, occupy till I come. This life, the Yellow Brick Road, the Scarlet Ribbon, is about loving God with all your heart, full of strength of mind, love your neighbor as yourself. He was, I mean, uh, verse, <laughs> Luke 10. And when the man asked him, who's my neighbor? He told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's pretty cool. Because the guy in the parable risked his life to help somebody who was racially at odds with him. Do you remember the odds between the Pharisees? I'm oh, sorry, Sadducees. It is late. <laughs> Samaritans and the Jews. Today, it would probably be about like saying Arabs and Jews. Is there a rougher, you know, oil and water in the world? But Jesus says, commends the good Samaritan and says, go and do thou likewise. But it's really tough, Lord, go. But Lord, you know, go. And he starts down the elder brick road. If this is true, there's a kingdom. There's eternity. And don't believe people when they say, you can't take anything with you. You can take things with you. You shouldn't say things. The only thing you can take to heaven is lives you affect. Only lives go to heaven not lies, lives, L-I-V-E-S. So what you take, what you do with people is what goes on for eternity. But We've got the best message in the world because by starting with what's true instead of starting with faith alone, right? No wise person says I do to somebody they don't know. You know, we got these stupid commercials in the States where people go to Vegas or what, stays in, what goes to Vegas stays in Vegas or whatever the commercial is. And you get these silly movies where every once in a while somebody wakes up in the morning in bed and they turn over and they go, what? I'm not married. Yeah, you got a ring on your finger. Who's that person next to me? I have no idea. You find out you're married. <laughs> right? Those make movies because they're stupid. And, and uh, you know, they're sleepless in Seattle kind of movies. That was a joke, but. <laughs> um, we don't marry like that. You learn about somebody. And we don't start with faith, 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 faith. We start with learning about somebody. And the somebody's Jesus. And you start by learning about the gospel because he's the one that says deity, death, resurrections will get you started. So. It's not smart to do something other than what he asks you to do, so do what he asks you to do, and you're on your way. You know about them. you checked them out. You say, I do. You're on the path. Look what's down there. Take people with you. It's not hard. Let me end with a little tiny application here from the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 beautiful verses. He said, The first thing he says is, therefore, because Jesus has been raised, therefore, stand fast. I don't know if you have surveys like this in your country, but in our country, surveys tell us this is what people self-report. Our young people self-report 60 to 92% of our young people report losing their faith when they go away to secular colleges. Paul says, stand steadfast. If I want to disciple my children, pastor my church, teach my Sunday school class, talk to people at work, I don't want to spend time on periphery issues, no matter how interesting. Sovereignty or free will. Not going to get you on the path. Not going to get them on the path. You know funny thing? If I was going to, if I, if my team wins the Super Bowl, what is it in soccer in England? What's it called? What is it? Pardon? Premier League League Championship. If your team wins, do you tell everybody? Do you tell everybody if they don't want to hear All right. I live on a little lake. If I catch a big bass? Last time I caught a big bass, I looked around to see who was in their yards. Nobody was. I didn't care. I held it up, and I went, whoa! And nobody still cared. But my point is, I caught the big one. You're going to know about it whether you like it or not. Oh, you don't like the fish? I don't care. Take a look at that. Huh? If we're that excited about our football team, soccer team, bass, whatever, how come we're not more excited about people we can lead to the Lord? Scripture says they rejoice in heaven over one person, and we could do that. We can take them with us. So stay steadfast. Second one, he says, your labor in the Lord's not in vain. Get working. Get working like what? Next verse. Chapter 16, verse 1. You know, you know Paul was a Baptist. It works right into what I'm saying. Because Paul says, he says, get working. Your labor and Lord is not in vain. Next verse. He says, take your wallets out. We have some poor believers in Jerusalem. I've taken up an offering. As soon as I get there, I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. See, they'd already taken an offering, that service. Only baptized passed the plate about three or four or five times. I'm Baptist. so That's the second thing. Your labor and Lord is not in vain. Do something about it. And he's collecting money for poor believers. Last point, back up to about verse 56. And he's telling you what it means. Earlier in the chapter, he said, if your loved ones have died in Christ, I'm sorry, if they've died, well, if they died in Christ and Jesus hasn't been raised, they've died in vain. That's gotta be some of the worst news you could ever have on the face of the earth someone you were trusting to see in heaven you're not going to be there they're not going to be there forget the hope but paul says that's not what paul says paul says he says death where's your sting grave where's your victory read the commentaries paul is not writing poetry it's written like poetry by the way it's in verse Paul's not writing poetry. Read the commentaries. He's taunting the devil. Don't forget, Paul's the same one who used boxing illustrations, track and field illustrations. He's playing, you know, he's playing the big leagues. And he says, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? He's getting in death's face. But unlike you moms, when you tell your boys not to trash talk, use that phrase over here, trash talk, when you tell your boys not to trash talk, that's because it's always about, ooh, that's because it's always about them, right? Don't be bragging about yourself. Paul wasn't bragging about himself. He was bragging about the Lord. Death, where's your sting? So Paul's doing this number. What you got for me, death? What you got for me, grave? You've got nothing. You've got what? What? I know. I know you can hurt me. Haven't you ever seen my list? I've been hurt many times. I know you'd like to take me out of commission. You're not going to do it. You're going down. Yeah, I know you can hurt me, but you've already lost. Death is not in your corner anymore. You lost your biggest weapon. Nah, 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 nah. Check the score. You're going down. That's what bottom line resurrection means. That's why there's a new Jerusalem down there. That's why you can take people along the road with you. I'll end with the words of our Lord, John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, you shall live also.